Exodus chapter 32, we're going to read and look at verses 1 through 14, the golden calf incident. Before we read the passage and look at it, let's uh, pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, every time we do it, we recognize that a miracle needs to take place. We can read the words on the page, we can understand them, we can spend time meditating on them, but unless the Holy Spirit drives them deep into the very joints of our spiritual being, we will not benefit at all. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words written on the page and write them on our hearts and change us for your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Exodus 32 at verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Thus far the reading of God's word, May he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, tonight, we are up to Exodus 32, up to this point in the book, the Israelites have come out of the land of Egypt. The Lord has delivered them by his grace on eagles' wings. He's brought them into the wilderness now and they are to follow him faithfully. And it's been a rough start, uh, which I think would be an understatement to describe their relationship with the Lord. A lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining going on. Moses has been up to Mount Sinai 
On numerous occasions, he received the Ten Commandments, brought them down. All of Israel said, yep, we will do this. We're on board with this covenant. And Moses is back up there with the Lord, getting instructions on how to build the tabernacle, etc. And they're about ready to build that tabernacle. And while Moses is absent for a relatively short amount of time, the Israelites concoct a uh, unique plan, let's put it that way, an idea that is very destructive. We're going to look at that tonight. And I want us to notice just three things as we walk through the passage. First of all, the idolatrous Israelites, we're going to look at that. Then we'll notice God in his wrath, justly upset and ready to punish the Israelites on account of their idolatry. And then finally, we'll look at the mediator, the one who stands between God and the Israelites. So first, we're going to look at the Israelites and notice in the first six verses, the story simply described. So first, Moses took a little bit longer than they thought. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him. So Moses was not delayed in God's time. I don't know what the people were thinking. We're not told. But in their minds, Moses was taking too long. So they decided we're going to take matters into our own hands. They asked Aaron for a God up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so Aaron went along with it. Big surprise there. Aaron went along with it. And he said, okay, when we came out of Egypt, a lot of you got gold. We've plundered the Egyptians. We have a lot of stuff. Give me your gold earrings, all of you. Sons, daughters, wives, doesn't matter. Whoever has an earring that's made of gold, give it to me. And then Aaron took it. They apparently melted it down made a lump of it, and he started carving away and made a golden calf. And then if you look at verse 5, not only did Aaron make a golden calf and then say, uh, allow them to say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron also built an altar before the golden calf, which is a place to offer sacrifices, as if they're saying, wow, uh, atonement is found at the golden calf. Uh, the golden calf is the one who can atone for our sins. So the people worshiped, they offered sacrifices, um, and they, uh, the, this calf is likely made in the image of a peace, uh, which is the Egyptian god in the form of a bull, uh, which signified productivity and fertility. Uh, whatever the case may be, whether they were trying to image God or just go back to Egypt, which could be the case in their minds, because remember, they still liked the meat pots back in Egypt. Maybe they wanted to go back and worship the gods of Egypt. Whatever the case may be, they fashioned a false god, they had a big party, they sacrificed to the god, and they partied and ate and drank and played. The people sat down, verse 6, to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want us to notice just a few things. The first is the stupidity or, uh, or idiocy of idolatry, verse 1. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They wanted to make a God that could go before them. The reason I say it's idiocy, which we'll notice in just a minute, is if you have to make your God, the very making of the God suggests that you, the maker of the God, are more powerful than the God itself, right? You made it. If you have to make the God, there's a big problem going on here, right? If you can't deliver yourself out of Egypt, and the Israelites could, then why would you make something weaker than yourself and look to it and say, oh, you're the God that brought us out of Egypt? Absolutely ridiculous. Idolatry from the outside in looks 
that ridiculous. It doesn't make any logical sense. And that's why Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah 44, 16, and Jeremiah 10, 5, this is written in them. Half of the tree he burns on the fire, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of the tree that the guy cut down, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Nobody considers that. You cut down a tree, half of it used to cook your food, the other half you fall down and worship. Nobody's thinking through that, Isaiah is saying. In the Jeremiah 10.5, the nation's idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak, they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Again, we know this clearly. If you have to make an idol, it's not going to be able to walk or carry you or certainly deliver you out of Egypt or save you at all. But that's the folly of idolatry. R.C. Sproul captured the attractiveness of idolatry, yet also the futility of it when he wrote, the cow gave no law, speaking of the golden calf, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. False religion might look attractive, might feel like a party. It might even be a bit of fun while eating and drinking and playing, but it is ultimately useless in saving us and bringing God glory. Something else I want us to notice about the first six verses, just the irony of it. Moses was receiving instructions for how the Lord was to be worshipped in the tabernacle and the people were establishing their own pagan worship service at the exact same time that Moses is getting instructions. Also, they had just heard the Ten Commandments, that they were not to have any gods before the Lord. And here they break the first commandment. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They also break the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And in verse 4, Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Like this is a great start. <laughs> Ten commandments, let's knock out the first two right away. By the time we get to Exodus 32, the Israelites are already plunging into crazy sins. And this passage is so indicting and terrible that it's actually picked up numerous times in the New Testament. Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 says, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, a quote directly out of Exodus 32, 6. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, before we move on to the second point about God's jealousy, the jealous God who rightly punishes idolatry, I want us to consider something. Idolatry is one of the most dehumanizing things any person can engage in. It's folly. 
It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. If you told any human being that someone would make a statue of gold or a painting of a landscape or a carved image made of a tree they just cut down and then they'd fall down and worship it, most human beings would say, well, that's ridiculous. Like, why, why would somebody fall down before a block of wood that they cut down? And yet, that's exactly what idolatry is. It's ridiculous. I hope we spend at least a little time as well thinking about our own idolatry. Our idolatry is usually a bit more sophisticated, or so we think. We don't fall down and worship a block of wood or a golden statue, but we cut down about 22 pine trees, nail them together, put some colorful tar on the roof and plastic or concrete on the outside, and then line them with gypsum rock and paint and worship a house. Or we worship a person or a job or a car or clothing or our looks or our popularity or praise from men. And the idolatry that we commit today is as stupid, idiotic, dumb as the Israelites' idolatry that took place at the foot of Mount Sinai in the incident of the golden calf. Crazy, ridiculous, doesn't make any sense at all. Well, secondly, beginning in verse seven, let's look at the jealous God who rightly punishes idolatry. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Moses has no idea what's happening. He's up on the mountain, probably overwhelmed by everything that's happening. It's pretty incredible. He's the only one that got to go up there and get this directly from God, as, as far as like directly in front of him. But the Lord knows what's going on. And so the Lord begins by just informing Moses of some things that are happening at the foot of Mount Sinai. He tells him, look, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is interesting that God would say this. The Israelites were the Lord's people. Remember, Israel was his firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. So he sent Moses to lay claim to his firstborn son in front of Pharaoh. And yet here the Lord says, these are your people. <laughs> Moses, your people, the people you brought up out of Egypt, they've got a problem. They've corrupted themselves, and the word corrupted has to do with ruin or to destroy. It's the same word used in reference to the Lord's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord's telling Moses, these Israelites are destroying themselves. And it's likely that the Lord's thinking, if they keep this up and there's no mediator, there's no forgiveness, they are going to be destroyed forever. And so the Lord is alerting Moses to this reality. They've, they've corrupted or they have destroyed themselves. They're disobedient. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Verse 8b, they've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord just details for Moses the ways that the Israelites are bringing destruction upon themselves. Then God describes the Israelites. If you look at verse 9, he says, I have seen this people. Now, that's interesting. I've seen this people. <laughs> That's not a great reference when the Lord's using the language of this. If you look back in verse 1, the people said, as for this Moses, we do not know what has become of him. It's a bit of a slight. This Moses? Yeah, we don't know what's become of him. And God speaks of the Israelites saying, this people, I've seen him sort of returning the favor. What is interesting is that the people were wrong to dismiss Moses as nothing. But God is accurate in dismissing the Israelites as nothing. The Israelites were not the strongest or the best or the most numerous nation, right? Deuteronomy 7 was because you were great or more numerous. 
So when the Lord refers to his people that he brought out of Egypt as simply this people, putting a bit of distance there, he wasn't lying at all. And the Israelites were about to find out that actually Moses is the only reason they survive. They denigrated Moses, but he's the only reason that they made it through this episode. And the Lord also says about his people that they are stiff-necked. They are a stiff-necked people. Stephen got himself killed for calling the Jews stiff-necked. It's a hard term. It means you won't come under the yoke and actually be trained. It's like an animal that just will not come under a yoke and actually do any work. That's the Israelites as the Lord describes them. So the Lord informs Moses, tells him what he thinks about the Israelites, a couple details, and then finally tells him what he's going to do about it. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So our Lord is bent on destroying the Israelites. Let me alone. He says he's going to consume them. It's the language of destruction. He's going to wipe the Israelites out. That is what he's telling Moses. I will wipe them out. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Now, this is the second time that sort of promise has been made. That sort of offer. God made it to Abram. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And God is testing Moses as a mediator. How good is he? Is he going to selfishly pursue this and not mediate for the people and say, okay, Lord, this sounds pretty good. These Israelites have been a pain in my neck. <laughs> Ever since we got out, they've been making my life very difficult. Make a great nation of me rather than Abraham. Sure, let's go for it. Or will Moses intercede for the people and say, you know what? I'm going to humbly mediate. I'm not going to ask you to make my name great, but I'm going to intercede for the Israelites. And before we move on to the mediator, I want to highlight something here. We know this well when we walk through the New Testament, but it's right here on the pages before us that all sin, we might look at the Israelites and say, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. All sin actually deserves death and punishment. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. If the Lord had destroyed the Israelites here and God had risen up to destroy them, there would have been no sin on God's part. He would have been perfectly just. He had created them more than that. He had redeemed them. They had every reason to obey him perfectly. In fact, they said that they would. Everything you've written, we will do. There will be no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. No one deserves heaven. All of us deserve to be in hell. And if God would have come out against his people and punished them eternally, it would have been right. And this is one of the hardest things for us as human beings to hear and swallow. You mean one sin? You mean they, they messed up it? All they did was, it was just idolatry was one time. Yes. <laughs> and our holy God in his justice would have been right to make every one of them perish in unbelief. That would have been his right. But there stands one in the gap. And this is maybe the greatest part of the whole passage, beginning in verse 7. The mediator who pleads our case. So we see the Israelites who committed idolatry. They've sinned. We see the Lord who has come against them. He's a jealous God. He does not want them to doing this. And he is going to come against them and consume them. But then we see the mediator who pleads our case. Verse 7, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The Lord is practically pleading with Moses to intercede for the Israelites. I want to highlight that first. Before we get to Moses' intercession, 
Notice verse 7, go down. The Lord's actually telling Moses, go, go down. Do the work of a mediator. Because these people are about to be consumed. Now, by telling Moses to go down, the Lord is forcing Moses to identify with the Israelites. By saying, these are your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, the Lord is pressing Moses into being the mediator. That's why the Lord says, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. He's trying to get Moses to identify with the Israelites, to act on their behalf. The people don't want Moses as their leader, but God wants Moses as the representative and mediator. Philip Graham Ryken put it this way, catch the irony here. Although the people had tried to disown Moses, he was the only one who could save them. They didn't want him. What the Lord's saying is, you may not want him. He's your only hope. <laughs> you better turn things around here. Secondly, I want to highlight this, what the Lord is doing to incline Moses to act as a mediator. Verse 10, the Lord says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. The language of let me alone isn't like, oh, God's going to go, or you know, sometimes people can say, let me alone, like I want to go cry in the corner. That is not what God is saying here. Let me alone. This is God saying, if you leave me alone and do not intercede for the people, I will destroy and consume them. Let me alone so I can do that. In other words, if you do intercede for them and don't leave me alone and you pray and you intercede and you act as a mediator, I will not consume them. Brevard Childs wrote this, God vows the severest punishment imaginable, but then suddenly he conditions it, as it were, on Moses' agreement. Let me alone that I may consume them. In other words, in whose hands are the Israelites at this point? Moses' hands. God has said he can, he's right to do this. He's going to consume. And he's inclining Moses to intercede. God is saying this. If you don't intercede and act, Moses, if you don't do anything for the sake of Israel, if you don't act as the mediator, I will utterly and completely destroy them. Which is why David in Psalm 106 can write this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. I read just a couple snippets of a sermon by Kevin DeYoung on this, and he said uh, an equivalent of this might look like uh, a, a father and his son going out and enjoying a bit of time together, and they left their siblings at home, or let's say there were four kids left at home or five kids left at home, and they come back, and there's a massive party going on, and the father's irate, and he turns to his son that he just enjoyed a meal with and says, we're going to go in this door, and I'm going to disown everybody. They're all out of the inheritance. You get the entire thing. I'm going to make you great now. We're going to be done with your siblings and absolutely destroy them and run them out of the house. They can go on their own. If the father said that, what is that doing? That is inviting the son to speak up and say, dad, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to receive all this inheritance. I don't want my siblings destroyed. No, it's practically inviting the son to be a mediator at that point. That's exactly the position Moses is in. The Lord's saying, let me alone so I can destroy them. Meaning, if you don't let me alone and you pray to me and you mediate, I will not consume them at all. And so Moses intercedes. 
He does a few things in his interceding. The first, he reminds God that the Israelites are his own people. Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He's simply reminding the Lord, look, these are your people. You're the one who brought them out of Egypt. You're the one who saved them. Secondly, he reminds the Lord of all that he has done for the Israelites already in delivering them from Egypt. Verse 11, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Lord, you've just done, you pulled off 10 plagues. You brought them out on dry ground. You destroyed Pharaoh and his army. They crossed over. You did this whole thing. These are your people. He prays thirdly for the public witness of God among the nations. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Lord, you know what people are going to say? The Egyptians are going to mock you. Oh, this God, he's maybe more powerful than Pharaoh, but he's not the God of heaven and earth. He brought them out in the wilderness to just destroy them. Moses also pleads on the basis of God's covenant promise he made in the past. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses pleaded, he acted as mediator. And we're told in verse 14, what the Lord said would happen, right? If you, if you don't plead, I'm going to consume them. But the understanding is if you do, I will relent. And we're told the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Notice one more thing that took place in Moses' intercession. He never once excused the people's sin or claims that they were in the right. He does not sugarcoat their idolatry or come to their defense as though they were innocent. Instead, he pleads their case as though they were completely guilty. So this mediator Moses saved the Israelites' day. They lived until the next day because of Moses. That's the only reason the Israelites were not destroyed and consumed, is because of Moses. Who does he sound like? I don't know, every one of you kids like, Jesus, right? Yes, that's exactly who Moses sounds like. God is teaching his Children, remember he's ABCs? We're, we're, we've gone through like some of the basic Christianity things in the tabernacle. We're like through the letter D at this point. Maybe we're on letter E. He's teaching them the very basics of what it is to belong to him. And he's teaching us a little bit about Jesus Christ here. So what is hinted at in Exodus 32 becomes full-blown in the new covenant when we see Jesus first. In Exodus 32, the Lord gently hints that he desires Moses to act as mediator between him and his people. There's a general hint at that. But in the new covenant, there's not, there's not a hint. It's just a full-blown statement. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Exodus 32, Moses, um, you should probably mediate. Very indirect way of saying it, that God wants somebody to mediate. New covenant, God sent the mediator. Yep, God's the one in charge of it. Second, Moses pleads with the Lord that he would turn from his burning anger against his own people, reminding God that the Israelites are his people, okay? But in the new covenant, we discover that the mediator, Jesus Christ, doesn't stand far off and remind God of who his people are. He actually identifies with God's people, becoming us, taking on our own flesh. That is incredible. 
Third difference between Jesus and Moses. In Exodus 32, Moses prays for the Lord's reputation among the nations that he would protect his reputation, lest some of the Egyptians say that he delivered his people only to kill them in the wilderness. But in the new covenant, Jesus doesn't merely pray for God's glory among the nations, although he does pray, Father, the hour has come, glorify your glorify your glorify yourself so that the Son may glorify you, John 17, 1. But Jesus actually comes into this world to die on the cross in front of the nations. Jesus himself making God's name great among the nations. How did he do this at the time when Jerusalem was packed full? Jesus, with Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written above his head in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, died on the cross in place of his people, demonstrating God's great love for his people so that the nations can know just how much God loves his people. And how much does God love his people? He sent his only son to die for them. Fourth difference, in Exodus 32, Moses pleads God's promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the new covenant, Jesus pleads for us himself. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. So Moses says, Lord, relent because of the promise you made. Jesus says, Lord, relent because of my finished work. The scars are still there. Their sins are forgiven. I've paid for him. Fifth, in Exodus 32, Moses does not say the people were innocent. He pleads for them as though they were guilty. But in the new covenant, Jesus Christ doesn't mediate for us as though we were guilty. He just flat out says we're guilty. Luke 5, 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. And finally, here's a category that blows all the doors off. Moses pleaded with the Lord that he would relent from destroying them for their sin. But Jesus Christ didn't merely plead. Although he did plead our case, Father, forgive them. Yet Jesus did something much more. He became a curse so that God would relent from destroying us for our sin. Jesus didn't just plead for God to remove his curse from us. Jesus underwent our curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Moses is a mediator, but he's not the one. He worked and gave the Israelites another day, but he's just a picture of a mediator who would come later that is far better, far greater mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just let me close with this. I realize this might sound like a cute little story about the Israelites and how they were spared. It's a great short story. I get that. But I want us to see that this is actually our story. And it's anything but cute. <laughs> if we don't have a mediator, the God will consume and destroy us with his anger against our sin. It's that simple. This is a story about us, about all of us who have committed idolatry, who sin by worshiping God's small g. And there is only one way we are able to remain God's people despite our sin, because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the only reason we will be in heaven rather than in hell. Have you and I committed adultery? Yeah. Idolatry? Yes. Have we committed idolatry every day? Yes. John Calvin, I think uh, our hearts are like idol-making factories. Yes, we do this all day, every day, beloved. What is the punishment for all idolatry? Being destroyed by God under his just wrath. That is what we all deserve. How can we avoid being eternally punished for our idolatry? By believing in the only mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. The only way we can avoid being punished by God is through Jesus. And for all who believe in Jesus, we do not have to worry or fret 
about being condemned for our idolatry. It's all been paid for. We have a mediator far better than Moses. Moses pulled it off. Jesus pulled it off in a far greater way. So we are freed from condemnation. And we can say with Paul in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.